Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow and this is the Goop Podcast where we bring together visionaries, scientists, healers, artists, and seekers. I'm so grateful that I get to interview these extraordinary thought leaders and share their wisdom with you. And I love listening to the conversations that are led by my co-host and dear friend, Cleo Wade. Cleo is a beautiful poet and author. I deeply admire her and the way she keeps her heart open to the world. Together, we believe that engaging in open-minded, honest, and sometimes difficult conversations has the power to change our lives. All right, over to Cleo. I'm very excited for today's episode with Casper Turkile. Casper is the author of The Power of Ritual and the co-founder of The Nearness, an app that helps people foster community and deepen their sense of belonging. As you'll hear today, I've been following Casper's work for a while. He studies and explores how people find meaning and connection in the modern world, which, if you know me, you know I'm constantly thinking about also. In our conversation, Casper and I talk about what brings people together in a time when we've become more socially isolated and lonelier than ever. We talked about where religion and spirituality fit into all of this and why Casper and I both believe that a religious and spiritual experience can be found at a Taylor Swift concert. It was such a joy to get to talk to Casper today about finding small ways to be a part of a big thing and why he believes that small groups can be a powerful force for personal and collective transformation. Okay, let's get to Casper Turkile. I am so happy right now. I can't even tell you. Your work has inspired so much of my work because early on, I felt that if I was going to write the nature of what I write, the writing wasn't enough, the intentional mm-hmm. community building, especially creating it in small yeah. groups first had to happen because the words have always been created to touch these really tender parts of our lives. And I couldn't put them out in the world responsibly without mm-hmm. asking of my community to hold it in a tender way with others to help us kind of get through when I was first introduced to your work, you know, seven years ago when I was still writing Heart Talk. After that, I remember doing that courageous love tour, which was just community building that was free. And I want to say that I think your work and your papers, I think it inspired me to do the Are You Okay booth where I sat and had these conversations. Those kind of conversations. Lucy from the Peanuts was my first inspiration for that. Right. But when I began to do it ritually and do it every year and in different cities, the idea that we built community in the space and started bringing blankets for people to sit with people they didn't know. And that definitely, I felt called to do that because of your work. So thank you so much um, for all of the ways you've impacted me because it's, it truly changed my approach to my work. Oh, Cleo, that I'm very touched to hear that. I, I love the way you were describing that sense of like, as we put things into the world, there is a responsibility of like, how, 
How do we help nurture the space in which it can be received? Certainly to, to like invite people to go deep, I think, I think we need something to hold that conversation or to feel held while we're having it with people. I say a lot that, you know, we live in a world where we're drowning in content, but what mm-hmm. we desperately need are containers for connection because it's so hard to be both like saying the words, but also holding the space. And so like, where, where can we go that we are held? where we can kind of fall apart a little bit, <laughs> so, you know, without it being uh, risky or unsafe, but like doing it in a way where, yeah, where, where something else is holding us in, in relationship with ourselves and each other. I have so many questions I want to jump into, but what really came to me as you were saying that is though, what is the difference then creating spaces to fall apart and those spaces that are kind of like this new age, almost like trauma bonding spaces, which are like (laughs) spaces to fall apart, but they're kind of like, I feel, feel edge on the edge of irresponsible and unhelpful. Although I'm sure also therapeutic, like hitting the wall. Right. Um, But then you have a hole in the wall. Yeah. I totally hear you. I I, I think it's really about, how the spaces are designed. So right now we're running this project called The Nearness where we're inviting people into small groups to accompany one another over eight weeks in in conversation together. And the way we've designed it, first of all, is never to ask people to go deeper than the the circle can hold, right? Mm. So that's one thing I think a lot of that kind of trauma porn like you know super intense let's all lose it sometimes you're asking people to 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 go to places that the space is just not designed to do so that's yeah. that's the first rule it's it's, the like, second... it's like the the rules and regulations almost um exactly being teacher like the mean teacher totally like the structure is so important for this and and by structure i mean how to use time how how many people are in the conversation? What kind of conversation is invited? What are the questions literally that we ask people to engage with? So all of those are ways that you can design the kind of the, the structure of the conversation. So yeah, don't go further than the circle can hold is the first one. The second one is like, what is the direction that you're going into? Because I think sometimes spaces for reflection can become so inward looking that it kind of becomes self-obsessive or just like that there's always more pain or always something more and I think any healthy community experience yes you go inward but that inward looking should always pull you out of yourself into relationship with the world around you and so the way we do that is to try and set up the expectation that you're you're showing up for yourself but within a week or two, you're realizing, wait, I'm showing up for other people too, because yeah. the quality of my listening and the quality of my attention and, and just the like sense of solidarity and mutuality, the relationships we're building, they're, they're not just there for me, but I'm there for them. And, and that changes everything mm. because suddenly, you know, the woe is me story or the, you know, whatever it is that I'm struggling with right now, not that, it, not that we're comparing it, but just by opening my heart and being present for someone else it it right sizes me, right? It's no longer like I'm the center of the universe and it's all about yeah. me. It's just like, wait, the beauty and the suffering in my life is part of a wider tapestry. And, and if I can lift my eyes and see that bigger picture, in some ways that's healing for me too. That's the second part that feels really important is that it's it's connecting with each other in this deeper way that we realize, you know, our liberations are mutually tied up together. And that's why we're there. You know, I often say that if you're in therapy without the goal of tackling your big steps so that you can become a small part of a big thing. I love that. It's literally just a hole for your narcissism, which we all have. And it's really funny because in the world, we really sit here thinking that there's just, I think that the kind of online therapy language that we live in too, of like, you know, Mm -hmm. everything is like, gaslighting is what this is and 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 there and and, boundaries and, and is what this is and yes. boundaries are what this is and all while saying and we need to live with nuance and there's nuance to all of those things in Almost. in therapy dialogue or therapy speak or whatever people use it as and I think that like I I have often talked about this with my own therapist which is that like you know it, for me at least the spiritual goal, which is like, you know, Mm. at least the non-ego goal, because I think that so many people enter, whether it's a therapeutic space, that is the one-on-one talk therapy or a group space and, and, and therapy really being this idea that 
space with another can transform our pain to something mm. other than, or can, can make our pain, not our driver. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so when I say therapy, maybe that's a poem or maybe that's, you know, being in one of your groups, or maybe that's being in therapy, but it's, it's just, it's a actively transformative experience. Right. And, and to me, the idea that spirituality come into that has always been critical because in that I'm not trying to control matter, right? Like I'm not trying to say, and then I could get Simon to do this and I could get this person to do this. And then my parents fit in this box and bubble of and all of these things, you know, being controlling forces rather than like energetic releases of why I feel the need to constrain is so important. But I think it's, gotten really hard to notice that in those spaces, we have all those things we create from the other, right? So like when we're sitting there being like, I just want this one parent of mine to not be like the craziest narcissist in the world. In that, and in our own therapy, we have to acknowledge that we have a little narcissist that wants to center our pain and our suffering because it's worthy of being seen, right? But it's Mm -hmm. not the thing that centers the universe or the world. Yeah. And I find that that being such a driving energy of your work. And mm-hmm. I guess where I need to maybe start is, all right. So if you're walking into a bar and I say to you, I don't know you. And I feel bad because I always do this in the pod. I'm like, I don't feel I'm a great potter because I forget that I have to start yeah. somewhere. Okay. We're strangers. We're in the bar. So what do you do? What? Because you do have this very unique job in life. And I do want to come back to after part two of what what you do, but how do you spend your day? Yeah, great question. So I, I really am obsessed with thinking about how in an age where more and more people are less and less religious and more and more people feel disconnected in one way or another, how do we build the spaces for connection and reflection that invite all of us, whatever language we use, however we think about it, to pay attention to the quality of our spiritual connection with ourselves, one another, that the neighborhoods we live in, the, the, the natural world that we're part of, and, and the something more, whatever language we use for that. And so a lot of it is thinking about what are the, the kind of rhythms in our lives that help us have space for that. Because I think so so much of our time is kind of colonized by the to-do list and and by the kind of numbing of of entertainment. And I count myself in that 100%. The YouTube hole is real. So thinking about that rhythm of reflection and attention, and then also the, the, the roles of connection that we have in one another's lives. You know, one of the things I think we lost with the kind of decline of, of, of this, you know, idealized village life and the modern world that we live in means that it's much harder to know not just who I am, but whose I am. What are the relationships where I have, have like loving responsibility? And so the nearness is one expression of, of, of all of this work to figure out, okay, what are the structures that will hold us in relationship beyond the moments of discomfort because I think one of the things that happens inevitably when you come close enough to someone's life is a you're going to be disappointed in them and b you're going to be disappointed in yourself in one way or another right it's just if you're married you know what I mean oh yeah (laughs) and so like what is what are the ways in which we're going to be held to sustain that connection beyond the initial discomfort not not into places of, of abuse or trauma obviously but but relationship demands discomfort in some way. And that's amplified, of course, when you add in layers of difference. The things that make me most happy when people tell stories about their experience of the nearness are when people say things like, <laughs> "This was." it's important to mention this was a black woman who said this after the eight weeks. She was like, I realized in week five that a guy in my small group was probably a Republican, but it was too late because I loved him already. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like how how can we come close enough to one another that we that we really see the person for the for the best of who they are and i think when you come close enough to someone's story and their experience you can't hate them anymore and so that transformation across difference but even just like anyone that we encounter like how, how basically how do we rebuild the bonds of love 
That's what my work is. <laughs> you, oh, simple task. <laughs> Do you think it's important for people to, especially in the the times we're living in, where our our you know differences are consistently paraded in the palm of our hands online? Do you think it's important, as as you were saying about the the woman from one of your your groups? When she's saying, I already loved him and you were saying the person that he is. So is it, do you think it's kind of like, sometimes I feel this way about people that I'm still actively moving and hoping towards connection with. There's the person that you are that is lovable. And there are the choices that you make Mm. due to what you've been through and what you're still learning. Yeah. I have a family member who was, you you know, had political opinions that were radically different than mine and also had a radically different childhood experience and has a radically different specific social experience now to mine. Whereas I feel that I have a lot of places of connection, togetherness and places I am held. And I feel that this other person struggles to find the places that they can be seen as the person they are and can maybe only be seen by the choices they're currently making. And I find that a lot. I don't know if you see that. I think about this a lot, but with men and women specifically, especially normative men and women in the sense of women tend to bond on emotional experiences and men, straight men, at least to me, seem to bond on hobbies. So if you don't have the hobby, you can only kind of bond with the water cooler guy. And if all the water cooler guys are Republicans, you almost feel that to have (laughs) something to talk about, you should turn on Sean Hannity or something like, and I think that that's real because I'm from Louisiana. I've seen it. No doubt about it. And it's so interesting. You know, the scientific literature really backs that up. And, And the more we become socially isolated, so the more time we spend by ourselves, the more our fear impulses increase. And so even inviting someone who's lonely, for example, to like join you for dinner, like a group of friends, hey, come join us. What is meant as an invitation that's compassionate and warm and welcoming is experienced by someone who's in that state of threat perception as dangerous. And so it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy where people who are more isolated find it even more difficult to connect because even the most gentle, warm-hearted invitation can be perceived as, I'm going to look stupid. No one's going to like me. It's better for me that I don't join. I should just stay inside and not talk to anyone. And so I, I, this or is- Or they're I going think, what... to attack me. So I need to come prepared to be defensive right. and on offense and just ready. Right. And I should say, you know, my work is not specifically focused on on kind of cross-political relationship yes, yeah, building. But I, I, think, I think these themes apply, which is that more and more of us are spending time alone. And so our sense of like, you know, there's wonderful studies of on the subway. I live in New York City. Anyone who has asked, will, like, imagine that you talk to a stranger on the subway. How comfortable exp- do you think that experience will be? Everyone is like, oh, God, please, no. I don't want to talk to them. This is going to go awfully. And then they tested people who actually did it. They said, you have to talk to someone. Just give them a compliment, say hello, whatever. People left those interactions feeling better about themselves, better about the other people, and better about the city as a whole. And so it's like our our brains just trick us into disconnection the more disconnected we are. And so I think not only interpersonally, but but on a on a kind of civic level, we we need places where we're going to connect with each other in this deeper way. Whether it's a a a fitness gym, whether it's a grief circle, I don't care where it is or, or where it's happening but we, we need ways in which we're brought into relationship together again. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. And do you think that a lot of why your 
you feel called to do this work with, with the nearness specifically is almost from this lack of community. I mean, when I was a kid, the YMCA was actively used for people, seniors to do things and uh, adults who had just gotten divorced to do things. And there were these spaces where people could be held by others and a building even to, you know, have, I guess that civic engagement almost you're talking about. Yeah. I feel like there's two answers to this question. I want to start with the personal one because the reason, <laughs> this is maybe bearing the lead, but the reason why I care about all of this stuff is I grew up in, in a family of four kids, both my parents, super loving, warm household. We went to a Waldorf school, if anyone's familiar with kind of Steiner education, lots of ritual, lots of community. My, my, my mother ran a bed and breakfast in our home. So like, there were just like random people at our breakfast First table First of all, I think morning. you just described my dream life where like I also <laughs> somehow get to be Lorelai Gilmore. Like, oh yes. my God. <laughs> you know, dancing around the Maypole on May Day and singing to cows at Christmas, all of this stuff. So that was beautiful. And I chose to leave to go to boarding school. I really wanted to, because I felt different somehow. And my years as a gay teenager in a boys boarding house with like 50 testosterone fueled teenage boys, I felt so isolated in that experience. And so I had this really rich experience of what it can be like to feel connected. And then this really just lonely, like difficult experience. And I had it easy compared to most people, but just that sense of like, people don't understand me. I, I'm not going to fit in just, just feeling so separate. And so a lot of, a lot of my motivation for all of this work comes from that experience of like, how, how can we enrich connection? And I think what you're pointing to, which is the bigger historical trends is absolutely correct. You know, for the first time in American history, at least recorded history, less than half of the population is a member of a religious institution. Uh, I just saw a paper that that talked about only 3% of people attending congregational services every week. And on any given weekend, less than 10% of the population is attending a, a worship service. More than three and a half thousand churches close every year. There's just so much data around religious institutions declining, but also civic institutions like the Lions and the Elks. And all of this was, of course, documented in uh, Robert Putnam's great book, Bowling Alone. And, and, and you just see across the board organizations that were that used to be a place of um, connection and strength and community coming together declining, as at the same time, we're seeing more and more individuals having huge resonance as influences or leaders or, you know, we, we really resonate with a particular author or, or speaker or whatever it is. There's individuals that we associate with instead of institutions. And the challenge is, yeah, we're well, just to land the plane. The challenge is that we end up in a place where it feels more like we're a passive audience rather than an active co-creator of, of, mm. of the experience. And that's why I loved what you were doing when you were doing your experiences and, and, and you know, the tour that you did was that you're intentionally helping people who loved your work connect with each other because that's, that's what we need. Okay, so here's my wondering. Yeah. In the and and this is I think this wondering might thrill you because something I love about you is that you love pop culture as much as I do. Yeah. While like <laughs> yeah. wanting to read John O'Donoghue and like <laughs> religious text all day. I mean, you went to Harvard Divinity School, you've been studying what happens when especially amongst millennials and younger the decline of religious affiliation while also having a rise in 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 this That's right. idea of being spiritual or, or or i would say becoming an evangelist to specific, very specific things like right now when you're telling me that if three and a half thousand churches and have closed in the past year and if you're telling me that what was it three percent you just said yeah. How do we explain, and not, not how do we explain, but this puts an exclamation point to me on Taylor Swift's Eras tour. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Like, it's, I it's, think people go for an evangelical, it's, I think it's a mega church. Absolutely. And it's because it's a moment where people go. I mean, I don't know if you saw the little video of, of all the people stuck, I think, in Salt Lake City oh, on the oh, airplane. First of all, I'm obsessed. I am a Swifty. So if anyone's <laughs> yes. listening to this, know that Casper and I are both Swifties as we as we 100%. speak on this. Um, so this is only this is all towards awe because I am an awe exactly. of the religious experience. 
that I people 100%. are having on this tour? It's a moment in which we feel like the tribe is gathering where our own experience is mirrored in the experience of others and our eyes are lifted to see the enormous, um, enormous thing that we are part of. And, and it is a religious experience in that way. It reminds me, honestly, if you look at the kind of the, the, the traditional biblical texts, the early Jewish festivals were pilgrimage festivals. So people would travel for a couple of days to gather in the town of their ancestors. And the tribe would gather for this moment, a sort of, a, 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 you know, a beautiful transformative experience where they would then afterwards travel home again. And I think you're seeing exactly that thing with the Renaissance tour and the era's tour. Like the, these these are moments where the, where the faithful gather, even something like a drag convention, right? Oh, where yeah. everyone has like been doing makeup at home and they're, they're transforming by themselves. And now they get to be with, with everyone else who cares about the same thing, who speaks the same language. And so when, when I look at kind of these bigger trends, I think about religion not as in decline, but that religion is changing, right? The way in which we're making meaning, we're, we're connecting with each other, the calendar of celebrations, like it's just shifting into a different place. And we may be a little hesitant about applying that spirituality language to something like a pop music concert, but the same is true with sports, right? Like if you look at a fandom, people traveling from, from all around the world to, to, to attend a Liverpool game and to sing, you'll never walk alone together with 50,000 other people. My experience was with a, like a fan community with Harry Potter, where, you know, for many years co-hosted this podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, where we read a chapter of, yeah, oh, you're sweet, where we read a chapter of the Harry Potter books each week and we would have conversations about what does this have to teach us about justice or love or honesty? And people started setting up local groups. When COVID hit, our listeners created a mutual aid fund where they sent thousands of dollars to each other to support each other after, you know, losing their job or something. And so, I think all of these are indicators of the ways in which people are finding meaning and building community, not always perfectly, certainly not, but in, yeah. in, in a way that gives me hope in the human longing for, for belonging, for, for becoming the people we want to be, for connecting with something beyond ourselves. I always feel that when you walk into a concert or whether you don't like or know the person's music or a game, a sports game, and you don't like or know baseball or basketball or whatever it is, the energy of the room of people rooting for something with stakes yes. that are not dangerous, but are still high stakes. I think yes. it's really interesting. I like asking the question, what is worthy of my devotion? Because mm. I do think sometimes we put that devotion into something that maybe isn't worthy of it. Yeah. And you know what I mean? And so that's that's ultimately why I think these religious traditions are so helpful because <laughs> enough people have been trying this before us that it's probably worth paying attention just a little bit. Right. And, you know, I had definitely moments where I was like, okay, we just need to wipe the slate clean. Let's begin again. But those things, those new, you know, just made it up on the spot things don't carry the same weight and meaning and wisdom as some of the things that we inherit. And my, my friend Jen Bailey talks about this idea of we, we need to we need to compost the great traditions, right? Like some of it needs to die, the patriarchy, the racism, the, like the shitty abuse, like there's so much there that needs to die. But there's also so much there that can give us life. And so for us, the job is, what are we going to let go of? And what are we going to hold on to? And I think that question of what is worthy of my devotion is one way of identifying, yes, justice is worthy of that. Yes, love and, and forgiveness. And these, you know, transcendence, like those are the things that are, that are worthy of our sustained moral commitment. Do you think there's like a minute to minute check-in somebody could do to ask? Because to me, I sit here asking that question of whether that's like, I'm still pissed about this thing. And yeah. I'm still thinking about it, which means that I'm giving it some level of devotion. Ooh. You know what I mean? And is this kind of brewing negativity inside of me worthy of devotion, right? I think so much of even the context around when people talk about people who behave like internet trolls. Mm -hmm. I try not to call people trolls, but behave like a troll mm -hmm. online or put on a mask online to, for, to be mean. People are often talking about, you know, they're jealous or they're this or they're that. And instead of asking that mm. person, is this worthy of your devotion? Mm. Is like to 
only and obsessively see what is mm. negative about someone and want to like kind of put it in public forum. Is that worthy of your devotion? Because there is something I know where there's the big things to be devoted to. Yeah. They're almost so big. You don't think about them in the day to day, the minute to minute moment. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of two things. One is I, I think we're drawn into those more beautiful things to devote ourselves to the closer we get to one another. You know, so many parents will say, you know, what's worthy of my devotion is my children or, you know, activists will talk about a cause that they, you know, believe in. And nearly always that, that relationship exposes us to vulnerability. And I think that's the second half of, of it is that it's painful to love the world. It's painful to love someone because it, it, it means there's risk and there's, it can go wrong. And, you know, Walter Brueggemann, who's a great scholar of, of, of the Hebrew prophets, I was listening to him talk yesterday and he was talking about lament, the, the, the practice of lamenting. And he said, lament is the breaking of numbness by the admission of pain and loss. Mm. And I think that's, isn't that beautiful? And I think so many of us are numb and that practice of vulnerability, that practice of, of grief, of, of lamenting is a way in which our, our hearts can open again to love. And Bishop Tutu, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu talked about his practice every day was to laugh and to cry. And that was the, that was the way he knew how to stay human in the midst of just mm -hmm. the most horrific, you know, apartheid government and everything else. And so I, I, I think part of that, like behaving like an internet troll is when, when we've hardened so much that all we have is numbness, then something, that kind of behavior feels like it's okay. And yet when, when we really connect with, with the goodness that's at the heart of who we are, no one would ever want to do that. And, and that so often happens. I had a friend who ran this project, Conversations with People Who Hate Me, Dylan Moran. He literally reached out. He would, he would find the contact information for someone who wrote nasty stuff on, on his profiles and then recorded a podcast conversation with them. And it's not that they ended up agreeing about politics or other things, but like nearly always it would reestablish the sense of like, hey, we are both humans and we can have a conversation that's different than this. And it was, it was this amazing practice of that kind of heart opening, dignifying conversation that, that is, is healing. Yeah. One of the reasons I named the REOK okay booth, the REOK okay booth was because yeah. I, which is for anyone who doesn't know, it's a booth that I do once a year where I listen for eight to 10 hours in a city. And, and I sit, just sit in the, a local park, but I named it that because when someone would say something negative, like not, not negative as in negative feedback or critique, but you know, when someone was trying to be Snipey. mean to me yeah, yeah, online, whether it was privately in a message or publicly, my first question would be like, are you okay? Wow. And, and I do understand wow. that, that can seem kind of like snippy back, <laughs> like, are you okay? And I don't mean it yeah. that way. I was just like, Hey, are you okay? Like, yeah. because the idea that, I, a love poem of eight words upsetting you to the point or, or, you know, doing kind of activating something in you that, that, you know, created this exchange is, is telling me like to ask you if you're okay. Yeah. Do you know? And, and I think that even that question is something I feel like more of us could ask and maybe more of us could answer honestly for the sake of connection. Yeah. Well, I, lo I love that example so much. And also the practice of listening in the booth. I think so often when, when we see someone suffering, what we want to give is advice. And this is one of the biggest things we learn with the nearness circles is the way to protect the health and the vitality of the small group is to make sure no one gives unasked for advice. And mm -hmm. so it really is a practice of listening but sort of like a sacred listening because you're not just listening to the words someone's saying but you're listening to what's underneath the words mm -hmm. and so often i have seen that groups where there's that loving sustained attention that there's a phrase the idea that we're we're hearing one another into speech so that when we're mm -hmm. really being listened to we end up saying things and knowing things that we didn't know we knew and so the, the biggest gift we can give is that 
deep listening. And what's really cool is practicing it in a small group then means you're showing up for your children differently, for your colleagues, for your spouse, for your, for your family. And so it really is a skill, but it's uncomfortable because we yeah. want to jump in and be like, actually, I went through this and let me tell you. <laughs> Well, it's this, I think that there's two things people have that are like often unchecked. And I know because I live with them unchecked, but I'm constantly trying to check them, which is like compulsive generosity that Mm. I do think at times can come from a desire to control. And because true generosity, I think is very thoughtful and and a little bit more slow moving so that you can Mm. see the beginning, the middle and the end of how the generous act Mm. is, you know, lives towards the relationship between you and the person, not just the moment of crisis. And I think also this like, you know, impulse to fix, obviously, which is that like, oh my God, well, let me just tell you that. And I have dreams of being musical and I'm not. And I, I know, but I took a ukulele lesson once. Okay. I bought a green ukulele in New York and I went to take a, a ukulele lesson. This is almost 10 years ago. And the guy says to me, I'll never forget it. The first thing he asked me is, do you listen? And I was like, what do you mean? Uh, listen to music?" And he's like, he's like, well, where do you, what do you listen with? And I was like, my ears. And he's like, no, you'll never be able to create music. If you think you listen with your ears, he's, he said, listening is done with your entire body because it demands ooh, presence. That gives me chills. Ah, I mean, it's haunted me since then. And I always think about how the listening, when you are only listening with one part of your body, you're allowing your brain to think of like, what am I going to say next? And what did I just say then? And, or how do I help when you decide to make listening a total body experience like meditating, of course you get off track, but the call, the kind of intention within is to come back to, to come back to the moment to come back to the witnessing. That was a profound shift for me that I think enabled me to be able to do things like the Are You Okay booth? Because if not, I think it would have been like a Miss Cleo's advice booth. (laughs) Which Um, would be fun too, just different, right? Very. So for anyone who's maybe wondering right now, what would you say is the difference between religion and spirituality? Is going to Taylor Swift a religious experience or a spiritual one what why is it different and yeah. and how do you differentiate especially in today's world where we're not church goers in the way we used to be or yeah. temple or so the first thing to say is that academics who study this every day do not agree so both Got both it. of these words are like highly contested in in the literature what i would say about how most people use those words is that religion is a stand-in for institutions and spirituality is a stand-in for personal experience. Mm. Now, so, so when people say I'm spiritual, but not religious, what they often mean is I am interested and I care about the quality of my connection to the world around me, to something bigger than it with my deepest self. Like I might have a practice like tarot or meditation or yoga, whatever it is, but I don't identify with, with a bigger institution. No, I think that is, First of all, well-earned, you know, the way in which religion has weaponized itself against queer people, against women. You know, there's so much shit, if I could say that, that religious institutions have done, especially in the last 50 years. And yet, I think where that notion of spirituality falls short is that it often stops with the individual. And I think what we can learn from the best of religious traditions is that there is a mutuality that, that that allows us to go inward, but then that calls us outward. And that asks questions like, what is breaking your heart? And how, how can you serve the places where you see suffering, right? Whether it's homelessness or climate change or whatever it is, that, that a spirituality that is only focused on me will forever be insufficient. And that's been some of my favorite stories to see of secular communities. Like there was a makerspace in the Boston area that we studied right, where people come to, to make jewelry or, or, or to do woodwork or to print 3D, you know, what robots, whatever it is, that, that, that there are all of these machines and lathes and tools where they can create beautiful things. And ostensibly, this is a secular organization for creativity. But 
it started to do more than that. They started to celebrate Maker's Giving, a kind of Thanksgiving festival where people not only brought a beautiful dish, but something cool that they created that year. They started to, to you know, to, to find ways to mentor each other. And slowly they realized because they were open 24 seven, that people were coming who were housing insecure. So people were staying overnight and finding a place to sleep on a sofa. And suddenly this community that had started inward looking was pulled out into the world and became an advocate for, for better public housing in, in the town, in, in the Boston suburbs. And so I think we move into a, I don't want to say from spiritual to religious, but from a thin spirituality to a rich, deep, capacious spirituality when it's no longer just for us. And so that's that's one of my hopes for, the, you know, something like, a, you know, the, the, the Swifty world. Like, what are the ways in which all of those fans could be yeah. mobilized around a justice issue? What are the ways in which those people could become anchors of connection in their city, right? The, the, for me, that's the the big like creative task for us is like, how are we gonna use the, the amazing power and attraction and, and excitement and, and creativity that, that are in these spaces for something beyond ourselves? Well, because it is already interesting that something that is so spiritually felt takes place in like a purely capitalistic space. And yeah. I, that's what I actually think is the most fascinating as uh, you know, I, I feel that at a Beyonce show or a Taylor Swift show where I'm like, wow, the fact that the, their talent and love of the people that they make things for transcends, you know, because yeah. not to be rude, but it's like Jeff Bezos will never be able to do that. Right. And, and no. because he doesn't connect <laughs> to the arts, whereas <laughs> this these really enduring in and almost infinite feeling powers of that that do take place where you have to buy the tickets for a zillion dollars and you know the merch is not cheap and the all of these things and and usually and and you're sitting there feeling your entire past you know 15 years of your life if you're on a taylor swift show and you're really it's so spiritually enriching for people that it's fascinating to you know, most places there's the this idea that you should be doing that for free, right? Because if you go to church and you feel that way, you went for free and then you decided to donate, right? But I think what's really interesting is like, how do we convert the 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 fact that we can hold the spiritual and the capitalistic at the same time, which to me is the most unbelievable part of of this, you know, this artistry. And then how do we add the third thing, which is how do we kind of convert all of this energy into some type of social safety net for the vulnerable? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the relationship between, for better words, God and money, right? Religion and and capital. First of all, it's not a new relationship, right? I I don't want to paint some idealized past. Every institution has always been an economic one too. So, you know, money and religion have have been together for a long time. But I, I think, yeah. It's not new, but but your point absolutely is right, which is about access and about justice. And so one of the things that we really were thinking about when we started the Nearness was like, what's a way in which we can build a legal and a financial model that echoes and embodies the values that we care about? And so we incorporated as a cooperative because mm-hmm. that sense of mutuality and, and solidarity that that happens in the small groups, we wanted to build that into the model. And so when you sign up for an inner small group, you're invited to make a contribution, but we have a pay what you can system. So if the price point of like 200 bucks, 160 bucks, you know, does, doesn't fit your budget, you can choose the number that works for you. And so it's a really delicate balance because I also think in our, in our kind of brand led world, people often think community happens for free and it doesn't, yeah. Yeah. it takes well, a lot of work. And so how do we, how do we balance those things of like put, pitching in to make something happen and making sure that it's accessible to everyone? Or I find that people think it's hard to value community space as the thing to pay for. So, right. you know, because obviously there's a show or there's a, we you know, and, and, and I, I have definitely seen or, or felt that too of like, you know, I think that, question I'm probably asked the most is, and, and and I honestly, for almost everyone who's been on this podcast with me, I focus mostly on loneliness and friendship and relationship. Um, yeah. People are constantly saying, you know, how do I make friends? And I think part of it has to do with, 
you know, valuing like whether it is your $20 worth going to the community space too, and not just going to like maybe the show where you can't hear somebody talk or do, but I think that we think that that should just be free. This, this is something we found in the study over and over again, especially with fitness communities, people would come for the body, but they would stay for the community. Mm-hmm. And so having, having something of value that, that people know that they'll pay for, right. That, and often that's about some learning a skill or learning some information. It's about status or having, you know, some experience that you have a story to tell about, but the reason why they would stay committed was that they they built relationships that were meaningful to them. And so, you know, we think about that with, with our work too, where it's like, okay, come and learn and have the conversations that you want to have about life's big questions in a way that, you know, you, you, you don't really have the space and opportunity usually, but stay for the relationships of support and, and, and love, right? That, that happens over time. Will you talk to me about the nearness starting yeah. from... If someone right now, if I'm answering, because I would love to actually say to the next yeah. person who asks me and says, I'm looking for community. Um, my kids have all gone to college and the school moms were my group. And now we don't have school activities anymore together. And people are moving away and I've moved neighborhoods because we don't need the big house. What should I do? Or I've just moved to a new city or I moved during, I'm sure you had a lot of this people moved Absolutely. during the pandemic. So if I want to say, this is why I think you should look into the nearness. And I'm not even saying yeah. this to plug. I, For anyone listening, I I truly am, have been a fan of Casper's. I've read his book. I am in his book. You are indeed. <laughs> but I love your work so much. And I remember when you were first in launching this really early on. Yeah. And unfortunately, it was when I was having both of my kids. So I wish I could have been even more involved in it, but I truly am such a fan of what you do and what you want our world to be. And so I, I'm not trying to say you should do the nearness, but <laughs> I'd love to be able to understand how they could and, yeah. you know, become part of the nearness community. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say for anyone interested, first of all, check out the website, the nearness.coop, but essentially what we'll invite you into is to sign up for a six or an eight week journey where we'll match you with five or six other people into a small group and you'll meet with them each week at the same time for 90 minutes online. And so it's a a very structured conversation. So we always open with a very simple breath and body meditation, very simple awareness practice just to get settled into our bodies. There's a little ritual where we read aloud the community covenant, which is kind of the, the set of intentions we hold for how we want to show up for each other, where we talk about things like advice giving, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We light a little candle, so kind of symbolizing the, the different time that we're entering while we're together. And then each week, there's a different journaling and conversation prompt. So some sometimes it's a storytelling prompt about when have you had an experience that A, B, and C, or mm-hmm. uh, what what is your river of belonging? We just did that last week where everyone drew an image of a river and then illustrated the times when we felt deep connection and the times when we felt the absence of it. And so uh, it's a beautiful, deep, intentional way to get to know a small group pretty quickly. Or it might be an activity that's a sort of kind of an internal uh, assessment moment of like, hey, what are the values that I really want to guide my life? And when do I get to fulfill those? And when do I fall short? So it's it's a, it's a sort of a rhythm of reflection each week to have that time and that space. And as you do that reflection together, you build these really beautiful connections. And so we've had groups that have now been going three or four cycles each, yeah. each time together. And my favorite things, honestly, Cleo, are that more than 90% of people who start the eight weeks finish wow. and more than half sign up for another one. And so it's, and it's not because they love me or what we're like they love each other that's what's so great is like right people start showing up for each other in in that beautiful way and so when you go through a breakup or when a parent dies or when there's a diagnosis or a divorce or something happens these are the people that you have in a text thread who you know are going to show up for you in the way that we know makes a difference and so it's it's kind of building an extra layer of of solidarity and joy and comfort into our life and whether they live far away or whether they live close by we found that both of those can can really make a difference and i was thinking actually cleo i am super excited i'm going to host a 
just a one-off conversation for anyone who's listening to this pod. And we're going to read one of your poems. What? And I, yes, I know. I'm very excited about it. So on the 8th of August at 12 p.m. Pacific, I'll host a Zoom reflection conversation where we're going to read your wonderful poem with eyes closed and mm-hmm. think about like, what's the hurricane that we've just lived through in our lives and and what do we want more of? And so we'll 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 engage with your beautiful written work, but then also break out into small groups. So we all get a, a taste of the nearness experience if anyone's interested. So Gosh. Well, well, I will definitely tune in. I would. Oh, you, I, I don't I mean would, you, you don't have no, to No, I know. I just, I mean, I, I ask that we all do and I would love to witness and even ha- be able to have the reflection. Maybe, maybe I'll do one where it's not me, my work, but I would love to go to one. And, and something I really love about this intention is in my new book, Remember Love, I like, I spent a lot of time writing about how our social circles are not necessarily our healing circles. Mm. And there's a difference. That's there's right. There's a huge difference. And I don't think we consider that a lot. Um, I don't think, I think we think that everyone should know how to move through infer- infertility with us. I think everyone should know how to understand the tragic loss of our mothers with us. I think that we attach uh, and and create community based on where it where it feels sparkly, like where we feel like a, a spark towards it. So I think that when you, there is this kind of unfortunate, kind of unfortunately, but there's like aspiration around this tribe building where you'd be like, whether it's like friendship goals or whatever, but it all seems to be like, or they'd be like, I wish I could be in that group chat where, and I think maybe social media kind of emphasize this idea that friendship mm-hmm. is like this very aspirational, like, ha ha. <laughs> Yeah, I 100% get what you're saying. And this, I think we were talking about like, what are the gifts to inherit from tradition? This to me is one of the biggest gifts of religious congregations because you end up sitting next to people that you wouldn't have chosen to. And you end up realizing that we can love one another without liking each other, Mm -hmm. right? Like for these kind of conversations, that real deep stuff, you don't actually need to have a lot of shared interests because yeah. what actually matters is the, is the commitment to honesty and vulnerability and deep listening. That's that's where the bonds get built and that's where we can really support and encourage one another. And so th- for me, that's one of the great joys with, with Ninus Groups too, is like you see people who are different in whether it's generationally or religious backgrounds or not religious or what, whatever it is, people you're like, wait, they've bonded in this way and mm-hmm. it's it's so great to see because it's exactly what you're pointing to it's like yeah we don't like we don't both like baseball or whatever it is but we we are committed to this kind of mutuality and and, and loving support and I think we need both types of friendships right like yeah. I was playing Mario Kart last night with a bunch of friends and trash talking and I love that and yeah. then I have a text thread you know with a dear friend of mine where you know, both our spouses have struggled with depression and like, it's an open thread where we get to say whatever the hell we want. And the other person doesn't even have to respond, right? It's just yeah. like, it's a place to vent. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so helpful. <laughs> but, you know, I think what's also so interesting is that I think the two types of people that something like the nearness is so great for, which is people who are struggling to find community period and feel truly alone and looking for space to feel belonging and and really activate aliveness within which i think really activates in arts and in community and i think the other person that's for is also someone who maybe has a lot of relationships slash lives in their own kind of online world where we are almost really spoiled by a likeness and we we mm. we're confusing a likeness and algorithm for belonging. So it's like your algorithm or Instagram for you page is not where you belong actually. Oh, Leo, that's a word. And so (laughs) I think what really excites my brain about the idea of being a part of the nearness community would be like, how often am I not spoiled by, and because by the way, we're so spoiled that even if we're, one of our friends begins to rub us the wrong way, we just don't call them for a week. Exactly. You know, and then we're like, exactly. oh, I'm over it. We both mellowed. And now we can like realign on behaving in these ways where we like share, you know, 99% of our interests. 
we can just disconnect during that 1% that we're off. So what I really love about that these are six weeks and eight week spaces is that, you know, you owe it to yourself and them to show up and to remove yourself from this kind of false sense of belonging that social media is giving us. And it's giving us belonging in a lot of ways, but it's not and not I it's not belonging to me. Sorry. I think it's, it's not. giving us it's I think not. it's activating a lot of communicating with without connection, perhaps. It's a thin veneer, but not the true depth, you know. I, I want a t-shirt with the algorithm is not belonging. <laughs> like that's that is fire. That is straight fire. And I think it leaves us feeling confused because we're like, okay. well, I'm being given what I think I want. Why is it not fulfilling? And it's I, I you know, the, the biblical word for that, and I'm I'm on this Walter Brueggemann kick, but he would call it idolatrous, right? Mm. That we're putting our hope and our faith into something that cannot meet what it is actually that we seek. So I'm going to be thinking about that for the next few days. Holy moly. That's really cool, Cleo. Something I've been personally focusing on a lot for deepening connection, not only to myself, and which is also so cool about the nearness is that it's a space for, you know, doing, I think what we were saying about therapy earlier, which is like, you know, how do we look at the big thing so that we can break it down and become the small thing that's a part of a big thing. When I was writing my new book, I, I wrote this thing that was like, ugh, I'm going to like butcher my own words, but <laughs> it was like when the material is at the um, center of my goals, I find that when I cross the finish line, there's loneliness there. But when the relational is the center of my goals, I find that whether I win or I lose, whether the trophy is in my hands or not, I'm the thing that's held. Like I'm what's held, right? And Cleo, you're going to make me cry. This is why you're a poet. It's so beautifully said. It's Um, so true because you're saying it's it's the means are the ends, right? Like the, 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 the love that we give and receive, the, the people that we're in relationship with, whether we win or lose, we're, we're holding and being held. Like that's, and when you, when you listen to people on their deathbed say what they wish they'd done more of and what they actually care about, it is always relationships. Mm-hmm. That's, that for me is the purpose of being alive is to love and be loved. I mean, Moulin Rouge said it all along. A hundred percent. But it's like, what is happening is that it's the pace. It's the pace of that, you know, we can't build ritual around music because, and someone, an artist's entire catalog is available to us and we can look up anything at any moment. And and I honestly think that the, we, we like to say that our, our, our brains can't handle this much information, but spiritually, like our hearts cannot move at this pace and we cannot, we cannot make sense of the, why we are here-ness of it all, which is so critical when we are moving at the pace that we move and, and, and moving through and witnessing the amount that we, that we are going to be forced to witness, but we can repace in how we witness, I think. Abraham Joshua Heschel, great Jewish theologian, talked about God was not a place, God was not a, a God of place, but a God in time. And so the only way in which we encounter God is in the presence, by being aware of the present moment. And he described the Shabbat, the, the traditional Jewish Sabbath, as a palace in time, that when we crossed the threshold of Friday night and it became dark and there were stars in the sky, that we entered into a time where you know, it, it wasn't that we had finished what we were doing. It's that it the, the time interrupted us. We had to lay it down in order to be present to God, to one another, to the joy of life. And so what you're mandated to do in, in the Jewish Sabbath tradition is, is to eat together, is to rest, to make love. Like you're literally supposed to have a taste of heaven in these 24 mm. hours. And in fact, it's 25 because it's so delicious that they added an extra hour. So I, I love all of those traditions because they're pointing us to exactly what I think that you're saying, which is that if we think that the hustle is going to get us to a place where finally we're going to arrive and have that sense of spiritual fulfillment, 
it is never going to be finished. And so we have to allow ourselves to be interrupted and it, it's going to be inconvenient. But the, the only way I think that we come back into that rhythm is, is by allowing ourselves to be interrupted. And so I, I read Heschel in Divinity School and I'm not Jewish, but I loved this practice so much. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to do a, a tech Sabbath. And so, you know, all the people who are doing these digital detoxes on Friday night, I will turn off my phone and my laptop and I hide them in the bookshelf so I don't <laughs> see them. And I can't tell you that so much creativity, so much ease bubbles up like I often end up writing very bad poetry or like singing a song just for the joy of singing something to myself like that that, there's something that once there is space for it 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 emerges Uh, I'll think of the person who was like oh I forgot that Jack was really struggling with that I should check in on him right like suddenly there's just other stuff that comes into my awareness that there wasn't space for and there wasn't time for and so yes we need we need ways in which our you know, the, the, the clock of selfishness is interrupted yeah. by exactly those kind of practices. And and what's beautiful, final thing I'll say about this is the Sabbath is just one part of that calendar, the, the weekly thing. But then when you when you kind of zoom out into a social view of that, you have the the the, the Shemitah, which is the year of rest every mm-hmm. 49 years. And there is a, a, a kind of a jubilee, which means that all of the all of the debts that were owed are forgiven. All of the land that has has entered into a, a single ownership is redistributed. And so these rhythms of time are are also rhythms of justice, where where everyone is given the chance to to thrive. And boy, do we need that right now. I'd love to know, you know, what is your answer when someone says, "I'm really lonely," and how do I get through or I'm having trouble, you know, as someone who has written so many, I I would say very well-known and and highly used research papers on how we gather in the care of souls and, you know, how we get into community with each other and make it really meaningful. When someone says to you, like, I'm lonely, whether they're married or they're not, or they're in relationships or they're not, or I really want to make new friends beyond obviously becoming a part of the nearness community having done all the research you've done what is the answer to that from you anyway well first i would say i'm really sorry and that it sucks and that it's hard and that there are real structural reasons why we've ended up in this place like we are not supposed to live like this so with that caveat i would i think the first thing i would think about is a lot of the scientific research tells us that it's not actually about having more friendships in our life. It's about the quality of connection that we have in the friendships that we do have. And so loneliness is different from social disconnection because, yeah, it's about our experience of the relationships. And so I would ask myself, is there someone I can tell the truth to about my experience? Mm-hmm. And one way of thinking about that is like, <laughs> it, it might not be someone that we expect to think about, is there someone who's listened to us in the past? And it might be a friend, it might be a mentor, it might be a colleague, it might be a family member, but like, where is a place that we can tell the truth about our experience and know that it will be received? Because any experience of loneliness is diminished when we when we are heard, when we are, when we are seen and validated. So that would be the, the place that I would start. And if if not that, the other thing, again, that research tells us is that we feel less alone when we're serving others. And so often the gift we most need ourselves is the thing we can give to other people. And I think about this a lot when I'm like discouraged or feeling like what I'm doing isn't good enough or, you know, all of all of the stories we tell ourselves. The thing I try and do in those moments is to reach out to someone who's created something that I've enjoyed, whether it's a book I loved or a, or a song that I enjoyed listening to or you know, an article in a, in a newspaper that I enjoyed reading, just like sending someone just a very short note saying, I loved what you wrote. It meant so, like meant to, this to me is why I wish you well, like not asking for anything, just saying thank you. And as a, as a practice that has been enormously helpful of just redirecting my energy from falling into, I don't want to say a pity party, but just, just feeling alone and, and being like, well, I could give this. And that means that was meaningful. So that those would be my two, my two go-to spots, I think. Yeah. yeah I and then a hug. That, 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I find that too, that knocking myself off the center. So as not to erase my experience, but to join right. it with someone else. That's exactly um, right. Is, is often the nearest antidote to loneliness, whether that's going into a forum and speaking with others about something I'm going yeah. through. And, and I think those spaces are much more easily found than we could ever imagine. Or whether uh, someone asked me this the other day, I said, you know, look at your local bookstore and see who they have coming to town, who has written Love anything that. that you are interested in and go to the talk. I, I, yes. I can't tell you, I'd say 80% of the people who come to my book tour stops come alone. So much so that we notice them making groups. The final thing I would say, in addition to the book bookstore thing is like, sometimes we feel lonely and that's okay. Like, I also don't want to get into a place where we think it's off, like, like it's bad, inherently bad. Like life is going to be full of connection and it's going to be full of loneliness. And that, that duality is just true. And so not every moment of being alone is a failure. So I think hold, holding all of those things together is hopefully what we could offer to someone. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Casper Turkile. I highly recommend his book, The Power of Ritual, and to check out The Nearness for anyone who is interested in nurturing more connection in their lives. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Goop Podcast.